We are beginning the epistle of James today. And uh, what I want to do is read some introductory statements before we get into it. I have a lot of introductory statements uh, because there's a lot of background, you know, relating to this book. And I think you need to know it. So I'm just going to share this with you. I'm going to just read out what I have here. Um, and we'll go from there. I'll comment as needed. The epistle of James, which is frequently referred, also referred to as the book of James, and the name that we will adopt throughout the series, is not only intensely practical, but also one of the most dynamic books of wisdom in the entire Bible. With R. Kent Hughes saying that it begins right off with a series of clear and direct practical ad admonitions and continues nonstop to the end. James is a do this, do that book, which, which taken to heart will dramatically affect our lives on every level. Yeah, I, I re really love that about the book of James. It, you know, he doesn't say, now, let's sit down and think about this. <laughs> okay? He just says, dude, do this. You know, if you're happy, do this. If you're sad, do that. <laughs> okay? And, and, you know, I think it's extraordinary that he's a, a pastor, uh, and this is the book that he wrote. Uh, you know, normally you'd think they're long-winded and carry on. You know, lots of counseling. And there is tremendous counseling in his book. But he's one of those people that, you know, he just says, this is your problem, that's the answer. You know, it's up to you to do it. You know what I mean? And, and, and he's not one of those people that hold your hand and say, How, do you feel like doing it today? I mean, <laughs> okay? He's not one of those people. So let's continue on. Added to this, in his commentary, Peter H. David says, that it is one of the most exciting parts of the New Testament. <coughs> it has a hard-hitting punch and reality-orientated attitude. Amen. That catches the readers unaware and astound them, while also offering them practical guidelines for life. He continues, nowhere does the voice of Jesus speak to the church more clearly than in James. As the commentary progresses, we will see that James is an example of how the early church believers used, to, uh, used and applied the words of Jesus to their daily life. Now, you're beginning to understand now why I picked this book. You know, I picked the epi uh, epistle of John because that was one apostle nobody could kill. So I want to know what he knew. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, they all got martyred except him. They tried to, they couldn't. This one is, is, is unique in that James is the half-brother of Jesus. And the things that he teaches us, I never knew this, by the way. The first time I taught this book, uh, if you've got that old series, throw it away. The <laughs> uh, no, only because I've got so much now. The first time, I didn't realize what I know now. And, uh, you know, and the more I learned about this, the more I realized, dear Lord, we need to know this book. Because it's an extension of Jesus Christ's own teaching. Because they used to have something called the oral law. And so, you know, today we write things down. Back in their day, they memorized things. Oh, brother, I can't remember. Yeah, you can. <laughs> okay? You know, everybody can. We just get lazy, don't we? we? We have auto this and, you know, speed dial that, and we just don't memorize anything these days. Me included, okay? <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that's not a good thing. I think that, you know, whatever you don't use, you start to lose. It rhymes. It's true. Okay, I'm just saying, it's a fact. <clears throat> and back then, they would memorize what they were told. Are you all with me? And so, I, I need you to understand something that whenever Jesus said something, James memorized it. 
Even though he wasn't a believer, they were in the, 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 the habit of doing that. Do you all understand what I'm trying to say? Amen. Okay, let's continue. I've, I've got more things to say. And, uh, and as to the epistle itself, the Full Life Study Bible says that James is classified as a general epistle. This is very important because sometimes people look at this and think, you know, it's written to the 12 tribes and we're not the 12 tribes. Okay, so that's the reason why I'm making this point now. Are you all with me? So follow me, please. So James is classified as a general epistle because it was originally addressed to a wider audience than a local church, <coughs> with William MacDonald going on to add that since all true believers are strangers and pilgrims in this world, can I get amen? Okay, that's Philippians 3.20 and 1 Peter 2.11. We can apply this letter to ourselves even if it wasn't written directly to us. Do you all get that? Okay, all right. It should be mentioned at this point that according to the Passion Translation, James is actually the Hebrew name Jacob, the name of a man who had 12 sons that formed the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you all understand now why he says to the 12 tribes? Interesting, isn't it? See how it all links up? I think that's tremendous. But since all commentaries refer to him as James, we'll do the same. Is that okay? Otherwise, if I keep saying Jacob, you all don't know who I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> um, and now that we know that James' name was associated with the 12 tribes of Israel, there may be more to the, his opening address than we previously thought. Either way, the Full Life Study Bible says that the salutation to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, that's James 1.1, along with other references, and I've got some references here, James 2.19 and 21, indicate that the epistle was written initially to Jewish Christians living outside of Palestine. It is possible that the recipients of the letter were among the first converts in Jerusalem, who, after Stephen's martyrdom, were scattered by persecution. That's in Acts 8.1, by the way. As far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Syrian, Antioch, and beyond. Okay, Acts 11.19 tells us all that. This would explain the letter's opening emphasis on joyfully enduring trials which test faith and require perseverance. So we're going to be looking at that. That's in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. Further to this, R. Kent Hughes says that it was apparently written before the famous Council of Jerusalem in 49 AD, which means, this is the reason why I put this down, which means it is probably the oldest, that is, the first epistle ever written. Now, I didn't know that. Do you all know that? I didn't know that. I'm just telling you. Okay. Of the 27 books of the New Testament, and thus reflects Jewish Christian teaching in its initial stages of development. See, it's kind of good to know this because sometimes you kind of think, well, you know, because James is so far back in the, you know, in the New Testament, you kind of think, well, how come he's saying this when we know this over here? Uh, you know, with me, okay, and understand something that since it was written, these were the Jews that became Christians. I told you there's no such thing as a Jewish Christian does not exist. The Jews said, from now on, we are going to be linked with Christ. Not an old law, but a living person. Amen? A living God. And so they said, we're not going to call ourselves Jews anymore. We're going to call ourselves Christians. Christians. You all with me? Amen. Next, because it was composed before Paul's writings, James discusses the subject of faith and works independently from Paul's teaching. James and Paul do not contradict each other, but rather supplement each other. James approaches faith 
subjectively in the sense of trust or confidence in the Lord, while Paul explains it objectively as the instrument of, uh, by which a believer is justified before God. I'm sorry, I, are you all getting all of this? Never mind, let's just keep going. <laughs> Next. <laughs> all right, see, some people have, you know, some, one person actually called this the epistle of straw because there was a revelation that came that the just shall live by faith, and James was talking about faith without works is dead. And the Catholic Church at the time was heavily into works. You had to work your way into heaven. Whereas Paul talks about faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Do you understand? And so because it looked like James was contradicting you know, what Paul was saying, they, they threw James out basically. And yet James had something very significant to say, and that was, you see, let me, let me just give this to you now, okay? <laughs> Paul talks about how you get saved. James talks about once you're saved, this is how you live. Did you all get that? So Paul says, listen, all you need is faith to get saved. That was what was wrong with what was being said before. But then James came along and said, now while you, once you are saved, because he was dealing with saved people at the time, he said, once you are saved, you need to do stuff. You know, and you don't do stuff to get to heaven. You should be doing stuff because you're going. Amen. You know, how do you want to enter the kingdom of God? With nothing? <laughs> okay. When Jesus said, I gave you, I, you know, I gave up my life for you. What did you do with it? That's really, he's not going to say, don't come in because you didn't do nothing. You know, <laughs> I, I've, I've heard this said before. You know, instead of going, well done, good, well, well done thou good and faithful servant. He'll look at some of them and go, well... What happened? <laughs> you know, you got saved. You're coming to heaven. You're meant to do something with that. <laughs> anyway, all right. Remember the, the parable of the talents? Remember how it was given, each one was given talents, one buried his? Yeah, okay. All right, next. With regard to the subject matter, I'm almost done. All right. The Spirit-Filled Life Bible, dear Lord, that's long, says that James is primarily practical and ethical emphasizing duty rather than doctrine. In 108 verses, 54 clear commands are given. And its primary aim is to speak to those who are inclined to talk their way to heaven instead of walk their way there. Did you get that? <laughs> okay. That was really key. Did you all catch that? Okay. All right. To give us an overall perspective into this fascinating book, the Full Life Study Bible also says that the epistle covers a wide variety of topics. This is a bit of a long sentence, so hang in there, okay? I just want you to see what is contained in this incredible epistle. Are you all ready? Okay. Related to living a genuine Christian life, James exhorts believers to endure their trials joyfully and benefit from them, to resist temptations, to be doers of the word, not just hearers, and to demonstrate an active faith, not an empty profession. <laughs> he solemnly warns about the sin sinfulness of an unruly tongue, carnal wisdom, sinful behavior, presumptuous living, and self-centered wealth. James concludes with an emphasis on patience, prayer, and reclaiming the wayward. Throughout its five chapters, the relationship between true faith and ungodly living is emphasized. Genuine faith, listen, is a tested faith, is an active faith. Did you get that? loves one's neighbor as oneself, manifests itself in good works, keeps a tight rein on the tongue. <clears throat> Pause for effect. 
Okay. <laughs> Hello. Seeks God's wisdom, submits to God as the righteous judge, trusts God in daily living, is not self-centered or self-indulgent, is patient in suffering, and is diligent in prayer. Wow. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Hallelujah. Added to this as we conclude this section, Douglas J. Moore says that James' lavish use of metaphors and illustrations makes his teaching, e teaching easy to understand and to remember. The billowing sea, the withered flower, the image of a face in a mirror, the bit in the horse's mouth, the rudder of a ship, the destructive forest fire, the pure spring of water, the arrogant businessman, the corroded metal, and the moth-eaten clothes are all images of virtually universal appeal. In other words, we can all relate to it. Amen? Amen. Now, as to the man himself, first of all, in his commentary, Simon J. Kistamaka says that scholars agree that the writer of the epistle, James, is the brother of Jesus. That's clearly brought out. Let's go to some scriptures. In Matthew chapter 13, so let's begin there. In verses 54 and 55, thank you for enduring that. I pray it blessed you. You know, you can replay these and watch these and listen to this. Matthew chapter 13, verses 50, uh, beginning verse 54, he says, And then he had come to, uh, yeah, when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? This is Jesus, obviously. Okay? Verse 55, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James? There he is. Okay? And he goes on to Joseph, Simon, and Judas. That's the author of Jude, by the way. That's the second last epistle in the New Testament. So he had two brothers that wrote books. That was pretty good, huh? Amen. Okay. Added to this, the reason that I brought that up, you know what, let me just give you reasons. The reason that I brought that up is because a lot of people think that, you know, uh, Mary was the eternal virgin. You know what I'm trying to say? I want you to know that, you know, Joseph didn't get a bad deal. No, can, can we be real for a minute? It's like, okay, I'm going to marry this, you know, girl. And God, you just came and took her. What is this? I didn't sign up for, you know, to be a eunuch or whatever. I didn't, I didn't do that, man. Don't do this to me. I would have had words, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so I just need you to know something. That once, you know, once Jesus was born, they got on with their life. That's all I'm going to say about that. There were other kids that came. I'm not going to teach about how that happens. All right, so I need you to understand that Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. Did you get that? Because this is very important. His father was God. They, we're going to see an incident. Well, no, in the life of Christ, when we were, we're studying it, we see an incident where, you know, remember one time they, they kind of lost him? You know, they started going back, 12 years old, remember that? And they suddenly go, where's the kid? You lost the kid? You know that's God's kid, right? We lost it, we lost God's kid. <laughs> like, uh, God, uh, we kind of lost the last one. Can we have another one? <laughs> this is not how it works. You all know that when they went back, and you know, they're going, they were frantically looking for him. And it's very interesting when they found him, he was, he was sitting with all the doctors of law, and they were, he was astounding all of them. And it's very interesting, Mary says to him, did you not know, you know, I and your father were worried about you. And he turned around and reminded her very subtly that Joseph wasn't his father. And he said, where do you think I would be other than in my father's house? 
Yeah, it was a bit of an ouch, you know, because, because we, sometimes it, it, we kind of get that way. After all the prophecies and everything else, we land. You know what I'm trying to say? And, and we, we go back to that default position, and wherever we started from, you know, we tend to sort of go back to that place, which is why we talked about transforming, you know, transformation of your mind and transforming your life, because that's the only way you can do it. Amen? And that takes time. Anyway. Let's get back to this. Added to this, Peter H. David writes, This younger brother of Jesus must have known his older brother and his teaching well. However, he did not believe him during his lifetime. And he probably, along with Mary, helped try to take Jesus home from, for his own good. Now that's brought in Mark chapter 3, where it says in verses 20 and 21. I just want to share all this with you because I want, to, I want you to see the miracle that took place in James' life. He didn't start out as a believer. This wasn't one of those, oh, you know, everybody just were, were yes men to Jesus. Boy, I tell you, James wasn't. He didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Listen, this is, this is important. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. He says, then the multitude came together again so that they could not as much uh, as eat bread. Now, this is, they're packing the place out to see Jesus. Okay, But when his, his own people, that is Jesus' own family, heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. This is what they thought about Jesus. He's lunatic. The guy's gone nuts. He left the planet. You know what I'm trying to say? Okay, you need to get this. All right? Continuing in verses 31 and 32, it identifies who they actually were when it says, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they sent to him, calling him, and a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Did you all get that? Amen? Okay. But all that was to change with Peter H. David's continuing on to say that after the resurrection, James suddenly appears with Jesus' other brothers among the disciples in the upper room, praying for the Spirit. It is Paul who gives the reasons for this about face. Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection. Let me just stop here for a minute. This is one of the key things that lets us know that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. You know, sometimes people say, how do we know? You know, uh, maybe his disciples came and took his body, and how do we know that something actually happened? We're seeing something very significant here. A brother that did not believe him while he was alive suddenly makes a turnaround after he died. Are you all with me? Amen. You know, you, don't, you won't do it. If you didn't believe in somebody to begin with, are you kidding? You're not going to put your reputation on the line, especially if you think he was nuts. Amen. <laughs> okay. Okay. After the resurrection, James suddenly appears with Jesus, other brothers, among the disciples in the upper room, praying for the Spirit. It is Paul who gives the reason for this about face. Jesus appeared to James again after the resurrection, before he appeared to the large apostolic company. And like the appearance to Paul, this was probably a converting experience. It says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 6 and 7, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 6 and 7. After that, he was seen by uh, over 500 brethren at once. Verse 7 says, and after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. So obviously, Jesus came back to James because obviously he wanted... James was the oldest brother, by the way, okay, uh, under him. He was obviously... Jesus was the eldest and under him was James. And so he, I, I believe he did this as a respect he just wanted him to know that, he that what he said was true. That everything that he saw, everything that he experienced 
wasn't a lie. Amen? And that was important for them to know. I think anyway. Okay. And following this life-changing event, John MacArthur goes on to explain what happened next when he writes, The church was born on the day of Pentecost, and James, although not an apostle, soon became one of its key leaders. I love that. When Paul visited Jerusalem, he discovered that James, as well as Peter and John, were pillars of, uh, pillars of the church there. That's in Galatians 2, verses 9 through 12, by the way. Because the apostles were frequently away preaching the gospel, James eventually became the preeminent leader of the Jerusalem church. Now, I want you to know his position. This is where he's coming from. This is why he's writing the letter, okay? All right. He says, to borrow a contemporary term, he was, the se- he was its senior pastor. Following his miraculous release from Herod's jail, Peter ordered the astounded believers to report these things to James and the brethren. That's in Acts 12, 17. Clearly indicating that James had become the one to whom important news was to be first reported. And even more than this, Peter H. Davids also points out that James appears sending out church delegates in Galatians 2.12. He presides over the apostolic council in Acts chapter 15. And he receives and advises Paul with his collection in Acts 21. It is clear that James was the undisputed leader of the Jerusalem church and arguably the most influential Christian leader of his day. What's more, Arkent Hughes says that James was a late bloomer. I really love that. But he flowered well. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> okay. When he truly came to know Christ, he became known as James the Just, a man of intense piety who, according to historical records, used to enter alone. Listen to this. Uh, used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew, uh, his knees grew hard like camels, beca- uh, camel's knees yeah, because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking forgiveness for the people. So from his excessive righteousness, he was called the just. Amen? Next, as to why the epistle is so important, Peter H. Davids, he had a lot to say, uh, says that it's clear to any casual reader of James that his writing is very close to the teachings of Jesus. In particular, James is very close to the teaching of Jesus recorded in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. This fact is underlined in that in all late Jewish and Christian literature, only James and Jesus pronounces woes on the rich. The problem that this raises is that James never directly cites a word of Jesus. He never says Jesus said or the Lord said. Would not the Lord's brother refer to him directly? The answer is that James does does quote Jesus at least once, but even there he does not name his source. Since Jesus, that's in James 5.12, since Jesus was Lord and head of the church, his teaching was its foundation and rule of life. Early Christians, listen, memorized this teaching much as Jews memorized that of their teachers. The result was that most people in the church had learned much of the teaching of Jesus by heart. Did you get that? They just memorized it. Okay. The letter of James is designed to take advantage of this fact. See, if you didn't know that, you wouldn't understand what's about to happen. Amen? All right. Where he quotes Jesus directly without saying so, he realizes Christians will know who originally made the statement. It is even, it is even quite possible that the, uh, most of the Proverbs and short sayings in James came from Jesus. But more importantly are his allusions to Jesus some 35 times in the epistle or once every three verses. 
the early Christian reader would immediately recognize that James was reminding them of sayings of Jesus. Wow. Do you understand why this is so incredible now? As I was looking at this, as I was studying this, I thought, wow, we are getting an extension of the Gospels. Everything that Jesus said, now we're getting James saying the same thing and applying it to things. And that's the reason why he's so like Jesus. You know, Jesus would look at the, the, say, look at the birds of the air. You know, look, you know, look at grass of the field, whatever. He just always gave examples. And you come to James and he's doing the same thing. He says, look at the rudder of a ship. Look at a horse. You know, he just starts to point in every direction. And he does exactly what Jesus did. And so you walk away with rudders and horses and, you know, all sorts of things in your mind. But is, isn't that a way of remembering things? Do pictures? Amen? Not some incredible concept and you go, wow, I, 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 okay, I lost it. <laughs> you know? But a picture you can take with you and remember something in relation to it. Hallelujah. Okay. In other words, the epistle of James contains Jesus, Christ's own, own teaching with Peter H. David saying that James serves as a model, I love this, for the church as to how to use the teachings of Jesus. <laughs> for him, the teachings of Jesus are not merely interesting insights into irrelevant modern life or applicable only in the millennium. For him, Jesus is Lord, and his teaching is the rule of life. What remains is to apply the teaching to specific situations and to draw appropriate conclusions. That is, to preach using the teaching of Jesus as a text, expressed or unexpressed. James is a model of how this was done in the first decades of the church, an authoritative example for the modern church to heed and emulate. Finally, as to his end, according to first century Jewish historian Josephus, James was said to have been martyred in 62 AD. All right, now that we have some understanding, it's a bit sad, I know, okay? Let's go and look at the epistle itself, shall we? Beginning with the very first verse where he says, now in James chapter 1, verse 1, amen, we got there. Big introduction, but we got there. All right, he says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So I needed you to know that even though this was written to them, it applies to us. Can I get amen? Okay. Now, for, no, notice first of all that James identifies himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, reminding us of what Jesus himself said in Matthew, 20 and, uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, and that is, please have a look at that, Matthew 20 and verse 28, he says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Can I just start out by saying this? James learned the most important lesson of all. We are not here for ourselves. We are here for others. We are not here to argue amongst ourselves. <laughs> Let me take a minute here. I don't know how, you know, it saddens me that people take up time arguing about minuscule doctrines when there are people going to hell. Get this, please. It's kind of like somebody's about to fall off a ship and we're arguing where the deck chair should go. Uh, dude, somebody's about to fall off a ship. We need to go rescue the person. Are you all with me? Instead of wondering where the deck chair should be. Well, you know, in the old days, we used to have it over here. But, you know, it moved, so we should move it back. And somebody's dying. And then a kid's running to the railing, and he's about to go over. But still, no, we have to make a decision about this deck chair. Bless God, this is an important deck chair. <laughs> I, you know, I'm making a point here. We need to be careful how we use our time, family. 
We're not going to get to heaven. And Jesus goes, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You really picked the right spot for the deck chair. <laughs> Can I get an amen? He's going to ask you, what did you do with the life I gave you? Save other lives or argue amongst yourselves? Amen. Amen. Okay. In his commentary, John MacArthur explains that the Greek word for bondservant depicts a slave, a person deprived of all personal freedom and totally under the control of his master. Absolute obedience and loyalty was required of every bondservant. I want you to understand something here. This is how James decided to identify himself or chose to identify himself with regard to Jesus. You know, I, at one point in time, he looked at his brother and thought, this guy's nuts. You know, fruity as a nut bar, whatever you want to call it. And he realized that he was God. <laughs> he was the son of God. He was the lamb of God that was going to take away the sin of the world. And all the times he disrespected him, he realized, I, I want you to remember what Jesus said. Remember when that woman that was, uh, uh, you know, ministering to him, and there was this Pharisee sitting there thinking, if you were really a prophet, you would know the sort of woman that is right now ministering to you, and, and, and ministering as in, you know, was washing his feet and so on and so forth. And Jesus could read their thoughts, you know, Jesus, <laughs> okay? And so he reads his thought and he goes, let me ask you a question. I mean, this is without this guy saying anything. He goes, dude, let me ask you a question. He'd say, dude, I'm just, this is me, okay? All right. <laughs> I'm doing a James. I'm bringing it to this, this, this century. He goes, dude, let me ask you a question. He goes, yeah, what? He goes, listen, if somebody owed you, a, you know, $10 and somebody else owed you 1000 bucks, and you forgave them both because they couldn't pay you back, which one would be more grateful? He said, well, the guy that owes you a thousand bucks, obviously. And he said, well, that's what this woman is here doing. She has for been forgiven of things that she never thought she would be forgiven of. And this is her way of saying thank you. You were forgiven of less. This is your way. Not much. Hey, man, <laughs> don't ever mess with Jesus. He will put you in your place lovingly, but he'll do it. Amen. Moving on. <laughs> okay. So anyway, I've said here again, this is how James chose to identify himself in relation to his elder brother, now the Lord and Savior of his life. With Simon J. Kissamaka saying that James could have said that he was the Lord's brother. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> you know the guy that rose from the dead? I'm his bro. Send the offerings to James, care of Jerusalem Church. <laughs> okay, whatever, whatever. Hello, come on, man. Can we be real about this? Okay, <laughs> don't get all, you know, weirdly holy on me, okay? <laughs> I love this. <laughs> um, he, he, one of the commentators wrote this. He could have even started his, uh, this letter by saying something like, James the Just, from the sacred womb of Mary, congenial uh, sibling of Christ, his brother, confident of the Messiah. But he didn't. Listen, I, I want to make a point here. Be careful of people that give you their resume. Are you all with me? Before they start saying anything. Start speaking. We'll know if God's behind this or not. Give us a resume and we're already questioning it. I do anyway. I'm just saying. 
Instead, he uses the term bondservant in all humility. Even though he occupies a position of authority in the church, James is a willing and obedient servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledges Jesus as Lord of his life. I think that's tremendous. Amen? In fact, uh, one commentator said, for all his pr uh, prominence and importance, important position in the church, so important that the letter fro from Jude begins, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. <laughs> Jude kind of said, I'm his brother, by the way. Okay. Uh, the title used is very modest. He is simply a servant. We are all simply servants. Yes, we are, we are the sons and the daughters of God. By position, we are all of that. How we choose to live our life, that's a different thing. Let, let me just tell you something here. Let's stop there because I, I've got more to go, and, but I don't want to uh, miss out on my, the points I need to make here. Because we're preaching on this now, okay? We're on verse 1. Okay, all right, <laughs> just so you know. Listen, from a place of authority, from a place of power, everything that I ministered to you regarding kingdom dominion, all of that stands. But this is the balance. That's how you are to the devil, not people. You don't put up with anything with regard to what he does in your life or anyone else's life. When we go up against him, we need to be ruthless. Because he is ruthless. Do you understand? When we, you know, when we go up against him, we take a mountain and, and drop it on him. I mean, we move a mountain, we can do it, <laughs> okay? Uh, you know what I'm trying to say? You just need to go in there with your armor on and you fight. What you must not do, sweetheart, what you must not do is put on that armor and start fighting with your mother-in-law or somebody else. <laughs> Whatever, whoever, okay? You, you, that's not what you do. This isn't about, I put, you know, you, you get nervous. Some Christians come dressed in the army and think, you know, this is a social occasion, right? <laughs> We're only having ice cream. Why do you have your armor on? Why is, there, why is your sword show shop? And what big teeth you have? <laughs> Hello? You know what I'm trying to say, okay? It's kind of like, don't do that. People get nervous. They won't come to your stuff anymore. I'm just saying, okay? You, listen, family. With people, we are to be all things to all people. We are to love them. We are to give ourselves up for them. Jesus said, no greater love a man has than to lay down his life for his friends, for his brothers, for his sisters, for anyone around. For God so loved the world that he didn't send a God that was full of armor come to come and slice everybody's head off who did wrong. It said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, who when a woman taking adultery comes to him and everybody wants to throw rocks at her, he says, let the first person that hasn't ever sinned ever in their life throw the first stone. And he was the only one who qualified. And he decided not to. Amen. Doesn't that tell us something? You know, the Bible tells, be imitators of God as dear children. You want to imitate Jesus Christ, imitate him that way. Don't look for ways of judging people and taking them down. Look for ways of uplifting people, loving them. Love covers a multitude of sins. Just always be there. Be a safe place for people to go to. Amen? Because there aren't very many safe places today in the world. Can I get an amen on that? So that's what we're talking about today. I want to give you wisdom. I want you to be the person, kind of person, that when the devil sees you, he gets nervous. But when people see you, they feel loved.
they feel safe. They, he's going to talk about storms. And you know, we're all like a ship out there in the ocean. And we're looking for that lighthouse. We're looking for that place where it's safe. And you need to be that place where it's safe. Amen? Through all the storms of life, people need to know they can come to you. Hallelujah. See, it's not up to us to judge anyone, but to love everyone. Hallelujah. All right, we're going to stop there before I get myself into more trouble. And <laughs> Too late, somebody said. And uh, <laughs> let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for this incredible epistle. As much as we love the epistle of John, Father, we are looking forward to all the things we're going to learn from Jesus' brother, James. All the wisdom that he received from his older brother, from his Lord, from his Savior.